continue, and winter weather is right around the corner. There's been no shortage of automotive news in the papers these days. After giving the Tesla Model S its highest rating ever for an automobile, Consumer Reports this week pulled its recommendation after learning about reliability issues related to the all-electric car. Consumers does still say that from a performance standpoint, the Tesla remains the best car it's ever reviewed. Over in Germany, the woes continue for VW as the scandal over its rigged diesel emissions shows no sign of letting up. AAA is out with a report on the hidden dangers of hands-free technology, and the automotive industry is gearing up for the upcoming auto show season. Two of our favorite car experts join me this hour to share the latest news from the big three and beyond and to answer your car buying and car maintenance questions. But first, this news update. And from the MPBN studios, I'm Erwin Gratz, and I'm not here today to talk about the Mets. Much as I'd like to, we're here to talk about cars on main calling. Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, responded to Consumer Reports' decision to withdraw its recommendations for the Tesla model by claiming that reports of reliability issues were the results of older cars. He also said those issues related to the car's drivetrain, charging equipment, and center console have all been addressed in new versions of the Model S. Well, today we'll talk about electric cars, about reliability issues, gas and diesel cars, and whatever other car, truck, and SUV questions you may have. Joining me from the studios of New Hampshire Public Radio is Jamie Page Deaton. She's the automotive editor for U.S. News and World Report. And joining us from his office is AAA Northeast Public Affairs spokesperson and master mechanic John Paul. As always, we want to hear from you. Are you in the market for a new car? Or are you trying to keep the car you have on the road just a little bit or maybe a lot longer? Give us a call. Our phone number is 1-800-399-3566. Our email address is talk at mpbn.net. And you can tweet us at Main Calling or post to the Main Calling Facebook page. And Jamie and John, welcome. Thank you. Good afternoon. All right. So, Jamie, what's in your driveway at the moment? Right now I've got a, a Hyundai Genesis, which is Hyundai's mm. uh, sort of midsize to large uh, luxury sedan, which is not a lot of people think about luxury when they think about Hyundai. But, uh, you know, it does very well in the U.S. News car rankings. You can see the full list at usnews.com slash cars. Um, and car reviewers love the Genesis because it's actually a really comfortable, very upscale car for about $20,000 less than anything you would cross shop it against. So it's really a good, smart choice. And I've really enjoyed having it this week. It's very quiet. Quiet inside, very nicely um, built, well-finished interior, nice, powerful V6 engine, and all-wheel drive. So you really couldn't ask for much more from a luxury sedan. John, have you been driving anything interesting of late? Well, normally when we get to test drive cars, we get to drive them for about a week or so. But I got a phone call the other day, and they said, would you be willing to drive a Viper, but only for a couple of days? And I said, yes, of course. (laughs) <laughs> and it's not it's not often you get to drive a Viper. Uh, it is probably one of the most impractical cars in the world. Uh, it is. Uh, it, I think it has a million horsepower. It has gigantic tires on it. It is lower to the ground than a Mazda Miata. Uh, as I'm getting older, uh, lower cars are becoming more of a challenge. Uh, but it is. Uh, it's a six-speed manual transmission. It's uh, the steering is ridiculously sensitive. You just take your eyes 
shift them away from the road for a second, and the car is uh, almost telepathically going wherever you look. Uh, the seats are actually pretty comfortable. Uh, there's no room inside of it for much of anything. If you brought a water bottle or a coffee cup with you, although there is cup holders, you can't use them. Uh, so it's not the most practical car in the world, but it is um, you know, 625 horsepowers of ridiculous performance, and to drive one every once in a while is just fun. Do we hear that uh, Chrysler may phase out the Viper? That's true. It, it looks like 2017 may be the end of the Viper run, which isn't a big surprise. It's not, it's not a huge seller. And there, the cost of a Viper is in the $100,000 range. So it was never a, a car that they really planned on selling a lot of. It was a halo car. It was something to bring car people into the dealerships. And uh, it's interesting... Uh, the little, the little I've driven the car in the past couple of days, it has either attracted a ridiculous amount of attention or none whatsoever. I drove by a school bus full of, I would say, 16-year-old, mostly boys in the, in the school bus, hardly even looked out the window at it. And then I drove by, I drove by someplace else, and, and people were falling off the sidewalk, uh, shooting video and taking pictures of it. So it's really kind of interesting where the car culture is these days. Hmm. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get back to that Consumer Reports decision to pull its recommendation for the Tesla. Why did they do that? Well, it's really came. Go ahead, Jamie. Go ahead, Jamie. I'm sorry. (laughs) This really came. You know, initially, uh, Consumer Reports rated the Tesla as the they gave it the highest rating to a car that they'd ever given. On a scale of 100, they gave it 105. So basically, they said this is the car that broke the Consumer Reports rating system. Um, So that in and of itself was a story. And now here we are a couple months later, and they're pulling the recommendation because they found that over time, the reliability of the Tesla Model S has not been particularly good. And they're basing that on um, the survey of their readers, which they do every single year. That's what the Consumer Reports reliability um, ratings are based on, is a survey of, of Consumer Reports readers who actually own those cars. Um, And then the actual recommendation comes from Consumer Reports testing at their test track and and with their editors. Um, So it's really the reliability issues that they've had with uh, the Tesla is stuff like, you know, with any car, like drivetrain issues. Um, And what's interesting to me is they are not the first publication to note these issues um, with the Tesla. Edmonds had a long-term Tesla um, that and that they actually went out and bought and owned and drove for a year, um, and they found that it had a number of reliability issues with it as well. As well, um, so really, it's you know this it's news because Consumer Reports basically said this is the best car ever built, and then a couple months later had to say, oh wait, no. Well, it's a great car to drive. It is maybe a little bit less than a great car to own because of these reliability issues. But honestly. I mean, when you're talking about a Tesla, it's an all-electric car. Um, it is one of the most high-tech cars on the road today. Um, it really is, I would say, if, you don't, if, if you're expecting this car not to have reliability issues as, you know, the bugs get worked out on a totally new piece of technology, I think you're being a little bit unrealistic. Um, so it, it really is kind of a big story that Consumer Reports had to walk, it, had to walk their recommendation back. But again, this is new technology. It's, there's going to be some bumps in the road. Um, and I think, you know, if you talk to most Tesla owners, that they are very happy with their purchases. And Tesla's been fairly responsive when it comes to fix, fixing issues that people have had. And John, uh, Consumer Reports still does recommend Tesla in other ways other than reliability. Well, it still it still is a phenomenal car. It's the performance is uh, ridiculous. It's you know it, whether almost any model is uh, faster from zero to sixty than most cars on the road. Uh, it is a 
uh, if you look at just pure battery use, it's a it's a very clean car. Air, uh, ergonomically, it's a, it's a very nice car to own. In fact, someone I know owns one. They've been very pleased with the car. They've been pleased with the overall performance, although they did notice uh, and a little bit of a surprise that uh, the driving range suffers both in cold, which everybody expected, but also in very hot weather, the driving range will suffer a little bit. The newer models have gotten a little bit better in that regards. The electronics and some of the other parts of it, what's very interesting about Tesla is since they're building the cars, they're able to do some updates right over the air, in other words, you wake up in the morning and it's just like your computer updated uh, the software while you were sleeping, your car sort of does the same thing. And Tesla's service departments, I think, are pretty good. I know uh, the person that I know who has one of these cars, it has, uh, I've seen it drive away on a trailer, they leave a car in its place and by the end of the day their car has returned and it's a pretty painless service procedure. So. Um, you know, I wish the car was that easy to get service. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about that over-the-air updating. Just before we went on the air, we talked about the fact that one of the things Tesla is now making available for a fee is uh, self-driving software for its cars, which, you know, you yeah. can just download. Yeah, and that, and that self-driving is, is a very interesting thing right now because a couple of other manufacturers are saying, well, if a self-driving car gets into a crash, we'll take responsibility. And it's interesting what we're seeing in self-driving and how, we, how we're looking at certain levels of autonomous vehicles. Now, a lot of 2015 and 2016 cars already have some level of self-driving in them. It could be that they have lane departure warning or lane departure correction or self-parking systems where you kind of just pull up to the spot and push the button and let the car park itself. So we're already seeing some of this. I did a little bit of an experiment with a Hyundai uh, where I set the cruise control at a ridiculously high speed. I think it was over 100 miles an hour. But the cruise control was an intelligent cruise control system where it would only go as far as fast as the car in front of me. So I drove down the road, and the car in front of me sped up, slowed down, sped up, slowed down. We were out on the highway. We were doing about highway speed. The car in front of me took the off-ramp. I followed it down the off-ramp, came to a stoplight, both that car and my car stopped. I never applied the gas or the brake. As the light changed, uh, we went through three sets of lights, and everything was good. I never touched the gas pedal and brake pedal. The car was literally driving itself, except for me pointing the steering wheel, until the person in front of me went through the red light, and my car wanted to do the same thing. <laughs> so there's certainly, yeah. you know, as, as we're adding autonomous uh, vehicles to the roadways and different levels of autonomy to the roadways. It's, it's, it's a pretty interesting thing. And Volvo came out a while back. One of their engineers came out and said, we want our self-driving vehicles to be as smart as a horse. And I kind of scratched my head and said, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, if you rode a horse at full gallop towards a cliff, the horse would stop because it knew it was the right thing to do. And we want our vehicles to do the same thing. So when you're doing something wrong or there's going to be a mistake or it's going to get you into trouble you're going to hurt yourself or someone else we want the car to take over at that point so we're looking at various levels of autonomy and you know whether it's something that can be downloaded and you know your car all of a sudden drives itself or not kind of kind of interesting stuff all right let's uh, let's talk about another car company that's having some trouble which is uh, volkswagen um jamie what's the latest news on the vw emissions scandal there 
Well, you know, some heads have rolled over at VW Corporate. Um, now they're not only being investigated in the U.S., they're being investigated across Europe as well. Um, but for owners and buyers, there are a couple of things you need to know. One, um, Volkswagen has said that they've figured out a fix um, for uh, the, the emissions issue. And, and really what was happening, in case some, in case you haven't been following this story, is with Volkswagen's diesel engines, um, they had a system that allowed them to basically cheat when the emissions were being tested. So the cars were not burning um, as cleanly as uh, as VW said that they were. And this was, you know, actually this broke, I think, about a day or two after the last time that John and I were on Main Calling. And of course, we were saying like, oh, if you want a diesel, go for a VW. They're great. <laughs> and then the next day we find out, oh, actually, they're not so much. We've all been, you know, we've all been hoodwinked. Um, but what Volkswagen has is a, is a fix for this that will basically make the um, diesel engines um, be as, as clean as they should be, actually meet the emissions requirements. Um, this will cost people um you know a little bit in terms of performance which of course leads to the leads to you know the question if all it was was a very small change in gas mileage um in order to and 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 power to get this clean burning engine why did they decide it was worth it to cheat i mean it's really the change in performance they're talking about is something that most drivers really won't notice um so why they felt the need to go through and cheat for on this is is really beyond me um but for what for for now it's going to take a long time for um you know the VW dealers to be able to fix this you know, and they're going to do this at no cost to the owners. Um, and then the other part of it, too, is VW has decided not to sell any diesel models um, in the U.S. Or any, I should say, they'll, they'll sell some diesel um, models. They'll sell their diesel SUVs, and, uh, and that's about it, but not their diesel cars in the U.S. for 2016 um, so that they can make those fixes and then, you know, before the cars go on sale without having to then go back and fix them, you know, next year. Um, so really, you know, for, for VW owners, there's a fix coming. If you're thinking about buying a VW, say you wanted a, a Jetta or a Golf uh, with a diesel engine, um, don't buy a 2016 because they're not going to sell, sell you one this year. Um, but they should be back for 2017. And if you already own one, um, you should be hearing from VW soon as to when you can get it fixed. But be advised, you know, there are a couple million of these cars on the road, um, and it's going to take a long time for VW to make all these fixes. So there could be a very long wait for a lot of VW owners. Well, um, you know, it's interesting uh, when you mentioned before that the difference in performance um, may not be noticeable to the typical driver. Um, I read the other day, of course, that the thing about recalls is that they can be voluntary. And, and mm-hmm. since this is a performance issue, there's some concern that VW owners won't get the fix because they're well, really more interested in the performance than the emissions. Yeah, and, and that, you know, I think it really comes down to why the person bought the D, the VW diesel in the first place. A lot of VW owners, they buy VWs because they, they're cars that have very sporty, you know, very German performance. And, um, you know, that is something that's a selling point for VWs. A lot of people buy diesels because they think that they're better for the environment because they get better gas mileage than a typical gasoline engine. And then what the appeal of a Volkswagen clean diesel was that it was going to, you know, have fewer emissions than your typical diesel engine. So it really sounded like a win-win. So I think if you're a buyer who bought it because they really, you really like the way that it drives, yeah, I could see not fixing it. I mean, I live in a state without emissions tests. You know, if, if I could still get my car registered and still drive it without sacrificing performance and I didn't buy it for environmental reasons, it would be really tempting to not fix it. Um, but then again, if I bought it for environmental reasons, you know, I would want to get in and get it fixed so I could continue to have, you know, feel like I was doing something that was, you know, better for the planet and taking care of 
things. Because really, you know, these the um, the emissions on these VW diesels were really several times over worse than what they were reporting. Um, so they were really very, you know, dirty driving cars. And so I think if you bought it for environmental reasons, you'll really want to make that switch so you can make sure that you're not polluting any more than you have to. All right. We're talking with uh, Jamie Page Deaton and John Paul about cars. We'd love to talk with you. The phone number here is 1-800-399-3566. That's 1-800-399-3566. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, your comments and questions. This is Maine Calling. You make Maine Calling possible, as do Finance Authority of Maine, committed to expanding business and education opportunities by investing in Mainers' success, famemaine.com, and AARP Maine, educating Mainers about the CARE Act, a new law supporting family caregivers, aarp.org me. Is experience as a corporate CEO enough preparation for being President of the United States? Presidents have power. They've got lots of power, but the idea that that makes them akin to a CEO misses just how hard this job really is. The Corner Office versus the Oval Office, later on All Things Considered, from NPR News. Join us for All Things Considered this afternoon at 4 o'clock. Hi, this is David Green. Now, many of you know my voice really well. Some of you probably wake up to me. I mean, who knew that one of the perks of this job was all this pillow talk? Well, since you and I are close, I'm going to make a bold suggestion. When it's time to unload your current car, instead of trading it in, why don't you donate it to this station? Believe it or not, we can turn it into Morning Edition, All Things Considered, or Radio Lab. It's easy. Here's how. You can visit mpbn.net and click on the Car Talk Vehicle Donation Program button in the top left corner. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Erwin Gratz. Today on the program, answers to your car buying and car maintenance questions. Two of our favorite car experts are on the line with me today. Jamie Page Deaton is the automotive editor for U.S. News and World Report. John Paul is Northeast Public Affairs spokesperson for AAA and also a master mechanic. We are inviting you to join our conversation. You can call us at 1-800-399-3566. You can email us. The address is talk at mpbn.net. You can tweet at Main Calling or post to our Facebook page. All right, guys, um, we've got a, an emailed message in here uh, from, looks like, uh, Mix. Uh, Mick, I'm sorry. Um, anyway, here's the question. We're looking for a new car this fall. My wife wants one of the Google self-driving cars, thinking it would be considerably safer than my driving, given that self-driving cars are not available question is, what cars have which safety features we should look for? He lists a few of them. Um, John? Well, certainly there's a, there's a lot of choices out there now. We're seeing uh, all kinds of cars that have lots and lots of safety features. I think one of the nicest cars, if your budget can afford it, is the new Volvo XC90. It is It has every safety feature you can imagine. It's all-wheel drive. It's comfortable. You can drive it forever. The seats just seem very supportive. It has good utility to it. Uh, just uh, generally a, a very, very nice car. And I think if you your budget isn't quite there, something like maybe a Subaru Forester or Outback is a good choice. All-wheel drive again adds that extra level of security. Neither of these cars are going to drive themselves, but both of them are very safe cars that I think really offer you know, one of the parts about safety, you can get a safe car, but 
adding that extra level of all-wheel drive sometimes can make a car that much safer, providing you don't get too overconfident in your in your driving through uh, poor weather conditions. Yeah, I think it's also worth mentioning, too. We were talking about Tesla's self-driving software. Um, mm-hmm. the, the other thing about that is they say that that really requires you to be on a well-marked road. It's really not ready for prime time either in local street driving or any place where the conditions are not really ideal. So. Yeah, that's that, exactly that, right. Yeah. I mean, it, it this, really is, yeah. Even in other ahead, manufacturers, Infinity has um, some, some self-driving features on a lot of their cars, their luxury sedans. Um, and really, when testing it, you know, if you're in any sort of construction zone or any area um, like you get in New England where maybe the uh, road lines are a little bit faded or painted over a couple of times, um, it can really throw the car off. But I think, you know, Mick's wife is exactly right. The riskiest thing in a car or the riskiest safety feature is actually the driver. Um, so really, you know, no matter what safety features you get, you always want to make sure that you're paying attention um, not being distracted, that you're not impaired in any way, either by, you know, lack of sleep or lack of attention. Um, and actually, IIHS, which is the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, they do a really good job because they're made up of insurance companies of gathering a lot of data on car accidents and seeing what safety features are actually worth the money for preventing accidents. Um, and they found that cars um, that actually have a couple of different safety features really end up having fewer accidents. And the accidents they do have tend to be a little bit less serious. And one of those surprising um, is uh, rotating headlights. So headlights that turn with the steering wheel to allow you to see around a curve faster um, is one of those safety features that IIHS actually recommends. Um, And, you know, where I live is out. It's fairly rural, lots of curvy roads. Um, When I'm testing a car that has that feature, you can see better, which means the farther you can see down the road, the more time you have to react to any potential hazard. Another thing that IHS recommends is, you know, forward collision alert and with auto brake if it has it. And that's where a car can see an obstacle in the road and, you know, apply the brakes even if you don't see it or even if you're not applying the brakes. Um, So really, you know, those are two features that I always recommend. I also um, really recommend um, blind spot spot checking, (laughs) a system that checks your blind spot for you. Um, Because, you know, sometimes you're not able to actually see. For example, I've got, you know, two kids. My younger son is in a rear-facing car seat in a lot of cars. He actually blocks my ability to see um, when I'm changing lanes. So having something that can check my blind spot for me and give me that extra sense of security and that little extra layer of safety is always nice to have. Yeah, rear bumper cameras, too. Uh, yeah, rear view cameras were, are another safety feature that, you know, they're not going to necessarily, you know, prevent a massive accident on the road. Um, but, you know, backing out of a parking lot, you think, oh, they only prevent fender benders. Well, um, a number of studies have shown that they actually um, really help protect children in back over accidents. Um, because a lot of times, you know, kids see like, oh, daddy's home. Daddy goes to adjust the car, doesn't realize that, you know, that the child's behind the car. And then you have something, you know, absolutely terrible happen. Um, so really, you know, they help for just preventing taps to your bumper, but they're also really great for keeping, you know, kids and pets and even some smaller adults safe. Our uh, phone number here is 1-800-399-3566, 1-800-399-3566. Let's go ahead and take a phone call from Chris in Portland. Chris, good afternoon. You're on Main Calling. Yep, hang on, Chris. There you go. Now you're with us. Okay, I own a 2009 Toyota Tacoma, and it's got about 90,000 miles on it. And I drive it primarily for commuting, um, but every spring I haul, you know, manure loam with it, and I tow a boat in the summer sometimes. And I'm wondering whether it's I should try and drive it for another 100,000 miles because it's easily got that in it. 
but because it's mostly a commuting vehicle, should I trade it for a, you know a Subaru Outback? Is really what I'm thinking about. And what's that kind of the trade-off, cost balance-wise, for fuel economy versus you know owning a car with no payments and taking on a car payment? You know, this is a great question, Chris. There is no way you're going to make up what you're saving in owning the car out right now um, with by 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 saving gas with an Outback. I would totally keep the Tacoma, drive it for another hundred thousand miles. Um, it sounds like it works pretty well for you. I mean, for a for a truck, the Tacoma gets pretty good gas mileage. Yes, the Outback gets better gas mileage. Um, but you know, when you're talking about taking on you know an extra twenty twenty five thousand um, dollars, there's no way you're going to make that up in gas savings. So I would go ahead and keep the Tacoma for as long as possible. All right, All right. Chris, thanks very much for the call. We appreciate it. All right, here's another question. This is from uh, Greg up in Troy. Um, this is about auto design. Uh, Greg writes, the Mini Cooper's design seems to say I'm fun to drive. My 1954 Willys pickup sports a friendly sort of Thomas the Tank engine grill. Then there are the menacing Dodge pickups or the new aggressive shark-like front end on the Toyota. From personal experience, I'm more likely to be ta- tailgated by the Dodge than by the Cooper. The question is, does the owner choose the design or does the design make the driver? John, what do you think? Well, well, that's a pretty interesting question. Before we get to that, though, I want to go right. back to Chris with the pickup truck only because uh, with the pickup truck, one of the things I would be concerned about, uh, a lot of the Tacoma trucks had frame rusting issues, and they may have been recalled. So just to make sure the car is completely safe, uh, go to the local your local Toyota dealer. There is, there is probably half a dozen different recalls, some affecting airbags, some affecting uh, frame corrosion, uh, and a few other things just to look at, just to make sure everything's in good shape. If everything looks like it's good, the frame is solid on the car, uh, there's no other repairs that need to be done. Keep it 100,000 miles. Definitely, like Jamie said, it's going to offset the cost of buying a new car. Back to, uh, you know, is is a an SUV owner a more aggressive driver than someone who drives a Mini Cooper or a Volkswagen Beetle? I don't know. I think to some extent your personality gravitates towards the car. So you may look at a car with uh, with a uh, what looks like a wide open mouth on it and say, oh that you know I I, I like that or I don't like it, uh, you know it's it's more it's uh, my my level of uh, psychological training came from I think a uh, 12th grade class I took in high school so I'm not quite sure but I think that a lot of people you know cars are a very personal thing and when they go out you know there's uh, you know some people can love certain things that they have in their homes their their refrigerator or their stereo systems or their television. But when, when it comes to a car, people name their cars. They, become, they have this real emotional relationship with their car. And as much as some people may love their, uh, you know, fancy washing machine and dryer, no one ever names their washing machine and dryer. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because uh, there are, if you look at specifically SUVs now, because car companies, you know, have these fuel economy standards that they need to meet and aerodynamics are so much a part of that. Um, you know, to me, a lot of cars are really starting to look the same, especially when you're talking about crossovers and SUVs. Um, they're really getting this sort of egg-like shape. So I think, you know, Greg has set the uh, set the stage for an interesting psychological experiment. When all cars start looking the same, will we all start driving the same? I don't know. I mean, I've tailgated plenty of people while, test- while testing a Mini, and I've tailgated plenty of people while testing a Dodge. So it might just be that, you know, tailgater is going to tailgate, and there's nothing beyond that. All right, uh, 1-800-399-3566, the phone number. Or if you'd like to send an email, you can do that. The address is talk at mpbn.net. 
All right, let's uh, take another question. Uh, this is from Frederick in South Portland. Good afternoon. You're on Maine Calling. Yeah, good afternoon. Hey, I'm, I'm a part of a family of non-aggressive Toyota Prius drivers. All right. <laughs> it's tough to drive in an aggressive manner in a fuel-efficient Prius. Hey, uh, before I question the panel about um, who, who's at the cutting edge of making these uh, next generation batteries. We've we've driven about four hundred fifty thousand miles on three Priuses going back to the year two thousand one, I guess. And if we compare the forty five miles per gallon that we've gotten to cars that get twenty two miles per gallon or half, that means that we've driven two hundred twenty thousand free miles. If you compare the forty five miles per gallon to twenty two miles per gallon, right? That's one half. So we've gotten double the mileage which is broken down to a savings of about $30,000 over the past 13 years. So not only is it a value-driven, uh, it works with our, our, our ethics, of course, as well. But now my question is, um, I'm looking for the next investment possibility, and I'm asking the panel, uh, who do they see as being at the cutting edge of the next wave of hybrid technology and batteries, particularly looking at Toyota's announcement that I guess they're going to give up the um, the gasoline engine by mid-century. So who do they see as being now the go-to company or companies that is doing this technology? Okay. Jamie, you want to start out with that one? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the most obvious answer, and I think we've talked about Tesla a lot, but it's it's Tesla's done a lot of work with batteries. They've built a new, or they're working on building a new, you know, super battery factory um, out in the West, and they have really focused on battery technology because, honestly, without that, then their model does not work. You know, Tesla knows that it needs to create cars that are much more affordable for the average consumer if they're going to survive. I mean, Tesla's now, they're luxury cars. They cost a lot of money. Um, if they're going to survive as a car company, they need to sell something that that is a lot less expensive. And in order to do that, they need to get the battery costs down. And that is something that they are working on feverishly, getting the battery costs down while getting the battery, you know, the, the range of the, that the car can cover. So the, the amount of energy the battery can store, they're working on getting that up. Um, beyond Tesla, I think, you know, Frederick's hit sort of the nail on the head. I mean, Toyota has really always been the leader when it comes to hybrid technology and, you know, electri- and semi-electrification of cars. Um, so that's one area where that company has invested a lot, and they're really seeing a good return on the, that investment because more than half of hybrids sold in the U.S. are Toyota Priuses, um, and you know the re- and the rest of you know the hybrids that are, are are left are sort of picking up the pieces because the Prius really just you know takes the cake when it comes to mileage, when it comes to um, you know that kind of battery technology that they have. Um, beyond that, you know BMW has done some very interesting work with electric cars. Um, they've got the BMW i8. Great electric car, BMW i3, great electric car. Um, so they were also working on battery technology. But I think unless you're look willing to, you know, if you're looking to buy today and you don't want a luxury car, then Toyota is really your best option. If you can wait a little bit, or you know, you're you're willing to um, work with a luxury brand, then I think you know BMW and Tesla are the way are the are the two companies that are really leading. All right, great. Thanks uh, for your question. Um, let's go now to Greg in Scarborough. Greg. Good afternoon. You're on Main Calling. Thank you for taking my call. I have a 2008 Honda Ridgeline, just turned 84,000 miles. I'm considering replacing the timing chain when it needs to be done, 
But I'm also told to replace the water pump when I'm replacing that timing chain as a preventive measure. I'd like to know your thoughts on that. And one additional question, are there any warning signs that my timing chain's about to go? Thank you. Okay, John, this sounds like it's up your alley. Well, uh, it's always a good idea when you're when you're replacing a timing belt. And, and the Honda Ridgeline actually has a timing belt, not a timing chain. Uh, timing chains are are mostly metallic, and they tend to last the life of the vehicle. A timing belt, on the other hand, is something that uh, has a specific time where it where it wears out, it stretches, it deteriorates. It's made out of rubber, and it and it needs to be it needs to be replaced periodically. Uh, so I've always found that it's generally a good idea to replace the water pump because if the water pump fails, and if you're if you're going through all the work of replacing the timing belt, and you don't replace the water pump, um, it's it's really only the cost of the part that's really the difference. If you were going if you were going to replace a timing belt on on this particular vehicle, uh, generally part of part of the replacement is um, you know you have to you have to fool around with the timing belt. You have to you have to get it out of the way. So if you're going to be there, the cost of the water pump to me on a on something that's going to last a hundred thousand miles or so. And if really the only difference is $160 for the part for the water pump, why not why not replace it at the same time and make sure that it's okay? Um, on others where the where the timing belt isn't the timing belt and the water pump aren't so close together, I'm I'm not quite as concerned. But on this particular car, I think I would want to replace the water pump at the same time. Or if I was only going to if I was only going to keep it another 10,000 miles past that, I probably wouldn't worry about it so much. But if the Honda Ridgeline is such a great utilitarian-type vehicle that can do a lot of things. It, it's, you know, half a truck, half a car. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great vehicle to have. So I think in that particular case, I would get it done if I planned, if I planned on replacing it. And I'm not sure, but I think the typical replacement interval is – is probably around 100,000 miles or so. But you're right there. You're right there where the water pump is. So why not why not replace it and get it out of, get it out of the way so you know that you, you're not always thinking in the back of your mind that, well, you know, I should have probably replaced that. I should have replaced that water pump. Why didn't I do that while the car was apart? So, you know, for me to look at that and say, yeah, it to me it makes sense to do it. And and on that particular car, that that's something that you would do at uh, – at a hundred and yeah, at a hundred and five thousand miles. So you have plenty of time. You have plenty of time to think about it still. So, uh, but I think if I was replacing, I, I would replace the water pump. Uh, the other question he had was, is there any way to tell? Is there any sign when a timing belt's going to go? No, no, they work perfectly till they break. Yeah, that's the problem. Sure. And because it's a rubber, think of a think of a giant cog rubber band, and and it doesn't do anything. It doesn't make any funny noises. It doesn't do anything else. It's just when it fails, it fails. And when and on that particular car, when it fails, it does horrendous damage to the engine. So if it was my car, I would do it. I would do it at uh, the recommended interval, whatever the owner's manual says. Get it done. Get it over with. Closely inspect that water pump, and if it was my if it was my money that was being spent, I would spend the extra money and have a water pump put in. Okay. Essentially, the labor the labor is almost included. All right, great. Uh, we'll take another short break here. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about winter driving. We'll take some more of your comments and questions. So please stay with us. You make main calling possible, as do Casella. 
converting landfill gas to electricity, committed to providing clean, renewable energy for Mainers, Casella, giving resources new life. And Mimic, a workers' compensation insurance company dedicated to safer workplaces, fair treatment for all workers, and a strong Maine economy. On the web at Mimic.com. This is Robert Siegel. Did you know that your car can do a lot more than just get you to work and back and leak oil? That old car of yours can also bring all of us the latest news from the Middle East or analysis of where the economy's going or a great movie review. When you donate your old car to this station, they'll turn it into the programs you love. Here's how. You can head over to mpbn.net and click on the Car Talk Vehicle Donation Program button in the top left corner. Join us at 1 o'clock following Maine Calling for Speaking in Maine. We'll head to Lewiston and Bates College for a conversation with Senator Angus King as part of the Civic Forum series sponsored by the Harvard Center for Community Partnerships. That's Speaking in Maine, Senator Angus King, coming up after Maine Calling at 1 o'clock here on MPBN Radio. And welcome back to uh, Maine Calling. I'm Erwin Gratz. Today on the program... Jamie and John are answering your car questions. Jamie Page Deaton is the automotive editor for U.S. News and World Report. John Paul, Northeast Public Affairs spokesperson for AAA and a master mechanic. Our phone number here, 1-800-399-3566. That's 1-800-399-3566. All right. All right. Uh, We've already had a couple of warning shots. Winter is coming. So uh, let's talk a little bit about that. First question for both of you guys, which is better, all-wheel drive? four-wheel drive or front-wheel drive with snow tires for getting through winter? Jamie? I think it depends. I mean, ideally, I think you want four-wheel drive or all-wheel drive with snow tires, as I'm sure John's going to agree with me on that, because, you know, all-wheel drive and four-wheel drive are great for getting the car started and getting it moving, but you really want the snow tires for stopping, which, you know, you're going to want to do probably a couple times on your on your commute into work or, or on your way to school during the day. So really, I think the better, the more contact you can have with the road, the better. That's what snow tires are going to get you. Um, all-wheel drive and four-wheel drive, they're going to get you, you know, they're going to get you a little bit more sure-footed stability. So really, the, the more power you can put to, or I'm sorry, the better contact you can have with the road, the more, um, you know, the, the more power you can get to all four wheels as opposed to two wheels, the better off you are. Okay. Uh, John, uh, we, we also got an email message from someone who has bought an all-wheel drive vehicle for the first main winter and is wondering whether uh, they need studded snow tires or can get by without them. So... They can probably get by without studded snow tires unless they live on the top of a glacier or something that's sheer ice. I would recommend, uh, like Jamie said, snow tires on an all-wheel drive car are sort of the ultimate combination if you can afford to do it. Uh, if if not, the all-season tires that came with the car probably, especially where the car is brand new, offer some alternatives. I personally prefer a, a true winter tire that is not necessarily a studded tire. The problem with studded tires is now all of a sudden you put metal or hard plastic spikes in a tire that can actually reduce dry weather traction. And since most of the roads we drive on are dry rather than wet and frozen, I prefer just a good winter tire. And there's there's several brands out there that are available uh, Blizzax and others that do a great job in the wintertime. The rubber compound's softer, it's stickier, it works better in the winter, and it works better in that dry road. And, and like Jamie, 
you put it. It's it's getting up the hill is pretty easy with a, with a lot of vehicles, whether it's front wheel drive with snow tires on it or something with good tires on it. But it's coming down the hill. That's where the four wheel drive, all wheel drive, or any wheel drive for that matter, they all become the same. And that's why you need to have that good aggressive tri- tire that's going to be able to grab the snow, grab the ice, and be able to bring the car to a safe stop. All right. Let's go back to the telephones. This is uh, William in Durham, New Hampshire. William, good afternoon. You're on Main Calling. Good afternoon. Thank you. Yeah. Um, You've probably had this question many times, but uh, I just returned from a brief assignment overseas. I was gone for about two months, and uh, I have a Chevy Colorado 2008 truck, and uh, I noticed that maybe the truck was sitting there for too long um, and the tire got a thumping sound on the left and it seems to be going away but i didn't know if that's like a permanently destroyed tire and the second thing is when i was looking into it i noticed that the tire is a 2000 or 205 size but yet all the data says it should be a 225 size and i didn't know if that makes a big difference why that would have been if you could help me on those questions that'd be great okay uh john Sure. It, the tire sound, the flat spot you're getting from that one particular tire, uh, it may in fact go away. I'm surprised it hasn't gone away already. Tires will flat spot somewhat. Tires are made out of one of the components inside a tire is a nylon cap. They add the nylon for strength, and the nylon will sometimes flat spot. Generally, driving the car will smooth it out. My concern is there might be something else. It might not be just the tire. It might be maybe a wheel bearing that has started to go bad from from just age of the vehicle. So, you know, look at the tires, look them over carefully, see if there's something else. Maybe even rotate that front tire to the rear to see if there's any change did the sound travel with the with the tire when you moved it front to rear if it did then it is a tire issue uh it is a flat spot issue with the tire again it may work its way out but at the same time i'd want to look that tire over very closely and make sure there's no bumps bruises bulges in the tire that that is indicating the tires actually started to fail uh, depending on how old it is, it, it still may have a workmanship warranty to it, so look at that. Regarding the size of the tire, the difference between a 205 and a 225 is about 10 millimeters in, in height. Uh, it may be there there's height and width uh, ratios, and it may be that the 225 tire was supposed to be a, a wider tire, but also a little narrow or a little different size sidewall so the 205s and the 225s may be identical height wise so that so everything's the same it may be just a different width so the 225 may be a wider tire with a with a uh, a little bit different size sidewall the 205 is a little narrower tire which actually may do better in in snow rather than riding up on top of the snow it may ride a little bit it may ride a little bit better but the most important thing is what tire was supposed to be on that vehicle from day one and you want to make sure you haven't altered the gross vehicle weight uh, ability. In other words, if you loaded up that pickup truck full of weight, you want to make sure the tires can actually carry the weight. So I would I would go to a good tire store, have them look it over carefully, see what's there. Same thing. And I would go try to go to the uh, a tire store where they carry that brand, just in case they decide that they can do something as far as uh, some co- kind of credit or adjustment with that tire. But I, I have a feeling the tire is just going to straighten itself out. All right. Great. William, thank you for that call. Um, 
Here's another question uh, from uh, Peter up in Richmond. Many Mainers need four-wheel drives in the winter. We've kind of established that. Uh, He writes, we presently own a 2005 four-wheel drive Toyota Matrix. Gets 24 to 27 miles a gallon. We are looking to purchase another small four-wheel drive. Which small four-wheel drive station wagons and sedans provide the best gas mileage? Jamie? I think, you know, it... (laughs) It seems like every time I'm on, I gotta say this, but you're, the car you're looking for is a Subaru. Um, you can look at, you know, the Subaru XV Crosstrek is a great small wagon, very similar to the Matrix in terms of size, a little bit taller in terms of ride, ride height, standard all-wheel drive. You can even get it as a hybrid if you really want to. Um, and it really, um, you know, it sounds like it would it would fit most of the requirements. Other cars that you might want to look at, um, if you can wait a year, uh, next year Volkswagen is bringing its um, Golf. Uh, sport wagon, which will be an all-track. It'll have all-wheel drive. It doesn't currently offer all-wheel drive, but it should next year. If you want to spend a little bit more money, you know, you can look at the Audi All-Road as a great all-wheel drive wagon. But really, for something as small as the Matrix, if that's the size that you're happy with, I would really go with the XV Crosstrek from Subaru. It really is just a really nice car to drive. Very fun when roads are dry, very sure-footed when they're not. Okay. Um, let's go back to the phones. This is Dunn in Belfast. Good afternoon. You're on Main Calling. Hey there. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you very much. I just uh, thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to share a couple of safety things quickly with your uh, listening audience that I have found, I think, to be beneficial. One of them is when I back up my automobile uh, in, like, the grocery store parking lot or anywhere, I always just tap the flashers, the hazards, and I think that adds an element of safety. The other thing I found to be of value is a lot of times people will have a beeper, like the bigger trucks and stuff will have a beeper when you put it in reverse. Well, that can be expensive if you try to add it on. So what I found was you can go to an automotive store and you can find a backup light, just a backup light, a bulb that has a beeper in it. And it's as simple to uh, install as just taking off the lens in the rear and taking out your backup light and putting in this new backup bulb that has a beeper. And therefore, if you put your flashers on or if you put it in reverse, as you back up, it will beep. And I think it really helps, particularly in these congested parking lots like at the grocery store. So I hope that this will benefit some of your uh, listeners. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, John, you want to comment or Jamie? Well, I certainly, ha- you know, try to, you know, look at all the safety aspects you can. You know, turning on your four-way flashers is just a way to bring attention to your car. The same thing with the beeping. What I like to do whenever possible and is try to find a parking space that allows you to drive through so essentially you're you're not backing out you're actually driving out of the parking space and i will certainly give up closeness to the front door to find a parking spot that's easier to drive out of just for that reason because it never fails if i'm driving a small car and i drive into the parking spot when i come out there's two big suvs on either side of me so you're sort of backing up hoping for the best when you're when you're backing out of a spot and being able to drive out of a spot just gives you that much more visibility so that helps but uh, you know whatever things work for people the problem is so many people get distracted i've seen it seems to be everybody walks out of the supermarket and the first thing they do they have their phone in their hand and they're 
you know, checking their messages or Facebook or whatever the case is. And they're and even the case of a car that's beeping, they may not be paying enough attention, or they may not see the flashing lights of a four-way flasher. So I, I just always try to tell people, you know, when you're when you're driving in general or backing out of a parking lot or in a parking lot, just kind of think everybody else on the road is nuts. Um. Here's a, a question that came in via email from Jim in New Gloucester. I've noticed that uh, used pickup trucks are holding their value a lot longer than they had in years past. Uh, Jim writes, am I to believe that a five-year-old truck with well over 100,000 miles really has enough life left in it to justify a used car lot price of almost two-thirds its original MSRP? What is the average lifespan of today's trucks given typical personal use? Jamie? Well, I mean, <clears throat> that's really hard to say first. I, I mean, that's uh, it really depends on how it's been used, you know, and typical personal use really varies when it comes to truck owners. Some people just will buy a truck, use it for, you know, light hauling and commuting like the caller did earlier. Other people will, you know, use it for heavy hauling, you know, horses, boats, other trailers, and they're using it for off-roading and plowing. So it really comes down to, you know, taking a look at um, you know, the, the strength of the truck, the reliability ratings for that particular model as well. I mean, you can go to J.D. Power on the U.S. News website. We also have reliability ratings going back to 2007 um, for all of the mainstream tru- mainstream trucks sold in the U.S. Um, and so that's one thing to look at. But however, you know, Jim is right. Used car values in general are really high right now and particularly high for used trucks and SUVs. And that is because gas prices are low. So that means that, you know, if you're buying a truck or an SUV, you're not going to see an immediate bite in your fuel budget like you would if gas prices were up, you know, three, four dollars a gallon. Um, And so that's really fueling a lot of demand for people who are just sort of thinking about gas prices today and maybe not gas prices down the road. Um, And that demand is really pushing prices up. Um, So if you're looking for a deal on a used truck, now is not the time to get one. I think, though, when you're talking about a truck with 100,000 miles on it, you know, five years old, being sold for two-thirds of its original value, that mileage, to me, is really high for somebody looking for two-thirds of the original value. I don't care how well that car or that truck has been maintained. I would really recommend, Jim, that you go over to um, one of two sites. One is cargurus.com, which allows you to look at used car um, ads and, you know, used car listings. And they have an algorithm that they put on based on the on the, uh, on the the price that people are asking and lets you know if that's a good deal or a bad deal based on what's happening with used car prices as a whole. A similar site is iccars.com. Um, and that is one where they also look at used car values as a whole and say, all right, this one's a good deal, this one's a bad deal. Um, and that'll let you know whether or not, you know, you should be, you know, go out and test drive that truck or just take a pass on it. All right, Jamie and John, thank you both for joining us today. Jamie Page Deaton is the automotive editor for U.S. News and World Report. John Paul is Northeast Public Affairs spokesperson for AAA. He's also a master mechanic. John Keimel ran the board today. You can find past editions of Maine Calling, a link to our audio archives, and a way to sign up for our podcast by visiting maincalling.net. Today's program will be rebroadcast this evening at midnight. The executive producer of Maine Calling is Jonathan Smith. I'm Erwin Gratz. You've been listening to Maine Calling here on the Maine Public Broadcasting Network. Have a great afternoon.